Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Welcome, young cupboard dwellers. I look forward to completing your training. In time, oh. you will call me and Gareth Master. <laughs> I'm going to start using that for my students. <laughs> Although somehow I don't think they see me in sort of a Palpatine, you know, esque way. So, uh, yeah. So, what have uh, what have you been up to this week, Aaron? Uh, to be honest with you, not much in the way of trying to spot wildlife uh, or well. doing anything in the natural world. I've been, um, I've been far too busy, actually. Oh dear! Which is always a shame. I feel, but but oh, to be fair, I found some um, some fossils from a previous hunt that I'd actually misplaced, so that was good. Yeah. Anything? Anything? Uh, world breaking. No, nothing world breaking. Yeah. Uh, oh well, you never know. You might find something hidden there that you you thought was was nothing. Turns out to be, you know, the next uh, new species of something. One's What's a nice. Of... One is a nice little ver- fossilized vertebrae, I believe. Oh, okay. Which well, that's nice. definitely worth it. Yeah. Um. Well, actually, on the, on the subject of fossils, um, I was looking at some of the blocks that we we brought back from our last little. Oh adventure. yeah, I haven't properly cracked them open or anything, but I do think there's something more than just shells in one piece. Mm. So I'll have to have a good look at that when I next get a chance. But um, about the only thing I've really been doing, other than getting things ready for Christmas and that, you know, putting the tree up and uh, and so on and so forth, and looking after my uh, trees outside because it went from being very very cold for about a week. Mm. To then just being the usual thing that is this time of the year, very, very wet. Yes. So I went from uh, quick, let's get everything sorted so that there isn't any frost damage uh, to, oh, okay, it's just back to mud and water. So, uh, yeah, that was most of my my weekend of sorting that out. <laughs> I've, I've also had, I, I ended up buying a new plant, something that happens every now and again. It spoke to me spoke to me it spoke to you did it yeah although it was better than the words that were spoke to me by by my wife so uh bringing home another plant <laughs> but i i got moved into a new office at work which didn't have any plants in it i'd like to point out so i've decided to make sure that there are plants in there now because every office should have plants there's just there's just no way it shouldn't uh you know every every office needs a plant yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, so, um, well, I think both of us have had rather sort of downtime when it comes to, to wildlife adventures, but there's nothing wrong with that. The weather's a bit rubbish, so let's face it, you know, probably not going to be out and about doing too much. Hmm. Tis the season also for sitting in front of the TV, watching Christmas films. Die Hard, I would definitely say, is a Christmas film. It's not a Christmas film. I will die on this hill on that Nakatomi Plaza. I will die on it. Anyway, <laughs> shall we move? Shall we move on from this rather controversial topic and uh, head into our news for this week? Yes, let's do it. 
news. Right. Well, we're into this week's news. Aaron, take us out. Every week, we're inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad, and the extraordinary. So let's open up our natural history cupboard newsreel, where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines, and dive on in. Gareth, take it yep. away. So from popsci.com, I've got critically endangered Sumatran rhino named Delilah welcomes first calf. Uh, the species is a critically endangered animal with less than 50 animals left. So this one being born brings a grand total to 51, which is a sad number in just the amount of them that there is. Uh, this new arrival is the fifth calf uh, born at the Way Kambas Sanctuary uh, and the second in 2023, uh, the Indonesian Ministry of Environment and Forestry have said. And on November the 25th, the healthy male Sumatran rhinoceros was born. And it's a very cute little thing. Yeah, that is really cute. And from fizz.org, appetite for drumsticks. First prey found in a tyrannosaur stomach. The fossilized remains of a young Gorgosaurus has gifted paleontologists with new insight into tyrannosaur feeding habits. Upon examination of their find back at the lab, researchers were stunned to find the leg bones of two young sitatapi, a feathered bipedal cassowary-like dinosaur, displaying evidence of the legs being selectively removed by the Gorgosaurus for, for consumption with no body to accompany them. Well, everyone loves a good drumstick. And... Let's face it, dinosaur drumsticks, they're going to be big. Mm. So my next uh, one comes from Biaza. Zoo conservation saves extinction in wild antelope species. And this is a species we have actually covered on the podcast. I believe it was Drew who covered the scimitar horned oryx, which yep. had been at risk of extinction, has now been downgraded thanks to conservation efforts spearheaded by zoos and governments all around the world meaning that they are no longer considered extinct in the wild. They are considered endangered by the IUCN, which doesn't seem like much, making them endangered, but they've gone from being completely extinct in the wild to now endangered. So that's absolutely huge work. And it's not just the uh, scimitar-horned oryx as well. It's also the saiga antelope as well. Yes. And been downgraded from critically endangered to endangered. So real, real uh, massive conservation gains by working with zoos like Marwell, uh, ZSL London, Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, FOTA. Um, all of these different uh, zoos in the UK have helped to work um, to restore the antelope into places like Chad uh, by conservation groups. Um, and uh, yeah, really good work all around. Yeah, just a, a reminder to support good accredited functional zoos and uh, support captive breeding programs mm. uh, from BBC online friends spot humpback whale off the coast of Cornwall. So a humpback whale has been spotted swimming and breaching and basically showing off as they do off the coast of Senning Cove and well, between Senning Cove and Porthnamvin and photographs were quite nice photographs were captured on uh, on Saturday a week ago by friends Will Brewster and Jason Prince while they were walking along that area of coastline. Lucky buggers. I would love to see a humpback whale. They are my favourite yeah. species. Right, well, I've got from Raptor Persecution UK, which is a site that obviously works 
uh, to, well, reduce the amount of persecution of UK raptor species. Uh, lambs found not to be a major source for breeding white-tailed sea eagles in Scotland. This press release... No. I know, shocking. This press release has basically pointed out that lambs are not a major food source, and the study finds the proportion of nests with evidence of lambs as prey uh, has declined over a 20-year period, uh, and also um, found that, shocking, Aaron, listen to this, that marine prey of these birds uh, is the most important food source for them, almost like it's in their name or something. This is brand new information. <laughs> um, but the analysis of food remains shows that the incredibly diverse diet during the breeding season uh, will be made up of over 11,375 different food items, and which of those are recorded 293 samples from nests in the 92 white-tailed sea eagle territories across Scotland, and 121 species were recorded within 70 species of bird, 17 species of mammal, and at least 30 species of fish. But, uh, yeah, lambs make up almost nothing of that. So, uh, shockingly unshocking news there. And when they have been caught uh, feasting on lambs, it's been lambs that have been dead and put dead out there. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, there we go. Eliminating that one from the older. Uh, Tory book of uh, anti-wildlife propaganda. Anyway, from Science Alert Online, even without a meteorite, the stage was set for dinosaurs to go extinct. The non-avian dinosaurs may have been on the way out when the Chichilub meteorite arrived to put them out of their misery. As massive increases of sulfur, mercury, and volcanic activity were aggressively destabilizing the climate at that time. During this period, as the Cretaceous began to cool down, the planet may have seen snap temperature drops of up to 10 degrees Celsius for short periods. The combination of all this, rendering life for dinosaurs somewhat uncomfortable, especially for the more infamous large species. See, I don't fully agree with that, in the sense that, yes, there would have been extinctions, but there is no way on Earth that I think those temperature changes would have seen the end of dinosaurs. Everyone thinks of dinosaurs as having lived in tropical conditions, but the temperatures in the Cretaceous period were basically the same as what we have now. Yeah, I was going to say, they're very similar to what we had today. Yeah. Dinosaurs knew what snow was. Dinosaurs lived in snow. So I think you would have had a certain number of them go extinct, but at the same time, yeah, I don't see that as being... You'd have a number of them adapt too. Exactly. And uh, even even the uh, the dinosaurs that did live through the extinction of the non-avian ones, well, survived, thrived, radiated, and are found everywhere today. So, uh, mm. yeah. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Definitely. And they always seem to bring that one up every now and again. So my final article, for or the, the short articles, uh, comes from the BBC... Uh, annoyingly, this is one that has ended in a rather sad uh, situation. A whale filmed swimming with Australian beachgoers dies after stranding. I actually saw this first thing this morning before I was going to work and then read this article this afternoon when I got in from work and in the space of that time, the animal had unfortunately died. Uh, a sperm whale was filmed swimming along a beach in Western Australia. It unfortunately was then found that it died after becoming stuck on a sandbar. Wildlife officers had spent several days trying to guide the elderly whale, which was injured and severely sunburnt, back to deeper waters. But unfortunately, 
Uh, it well, it died shortly after by beaching itself. Um, swimmers were pictured stroking the 15 meter long, 49 foot mammal on Saturday uh, while it was alive, prompting experts uh, to warn of the dangers uh, to both it and to humans. To be honest, after watching the video, I don't think that people were necessarily trying to stroke it as much. I think some people were actually just trying to usher it away from the shore because it does get dangerously close to the shore. This is a huge animal and it's, Mm. um, well, it's obviously not in the right place. Sperm whales are not found in that shallower water normally, but unfortunately this one seems to have died. Although it does look like because it was an old whale, it might have just been, you know, in its on its way out, as it were. Yeah. Um, and just <clears throat> turned up in a, a rather unfortunate place. So, yeah, a rather sad story to uh, to end the that bit on. But um, yeah, I I'm so I'm inclined to agree that it looked to me like they were trying to. I mean, it's kind of comical that that people think that they'd be able to, you know. Push a whale. In water swimming, push a whale. Yeah. But it did look to me like they were trying to that, that that was what they were trying to do. I'm I mean, I wasn't there. We weren't no. there. Obviously. I mean, I'm I'm re-watching the video footage that is is on the BBC's website for it, and it'll probably be on many Australian ones as well. But some people are definitely trying to stroke it. But I know I I gotta admit, if I was there, I, I would be trying to try and usher it. But this thing is is huge. It's are, a they? truly impressive animal, and it's unde- undeniable as to it being a sperm whale just by the the shape of its tail, its dorsal fin, you know mm. that sort of wrinkled back that they have. Um, they yeah. they might not be, I'm not sure, but they they might not be my favourite whale species, but they're definitely the holy grail of whale species for me. The holy the um, holy whale, the holy whale, yeah. Um, it is a shame. Uh, just just on that note um, about the people, the conservation groups, and and that telling people like not to touch them, to be careful. There is a good reason for that. And they're not trying oh, to spoil your your fun. These are animals that live in places deeper than you can comprehend, and they're exposed to bacteria and pathogens that we just aren't exposed to. So you put yourself and others at risk when you when you do get close to them but for those of you that were trying to push it back i i have to commend that anyway yeah. on to my final uh article and i've deliberately picked this one because it made me laugh how some people reacted to it and again it's it's from science alert online gaping hole in the sun bigger than 60 earths just blasted solar wind right at us we're going to come back to that uh, headline in a minute. So, no, we're not going to be destroyed, and we haven't been. At the time of writing uh, this uh, this article here, the coronal hole has, has already rotated away from us, and by the time of release, it will have already be forgotten by the mass. I was going to say, days. I'm not editing this if we're about to all die. No, but it it was just interesting. The, the, the hole, in quotation marks, is five times larger than the diameter of Jupiter, and released what scientists have referred to as a mild solar storm. But it may yet have made the auroras visible to a minimally larger audience, but not us in Devon, because whenever there's a chance of seeing aurora, uh, the aurora borealis, the northern lights in this area, what Devon likes to do is just gather all the clouds it possibly can and ruin it for us. 
the coronal hole is yet more evidence that this particularly active solar period uh, is basically the build-up to our star's solar maximum, which is part of its natural cycle. It will go through a solar maximum and then it will wind down to uh, to the to the opposite, basically. And it, it basically, it will start to relax immediately now. Um, but I picked it because, obviously, when there's a solar flare, people have watched far too many movies and then not able to separate fact from fiction. Um, and there was a lot of panic online about it that I saw. So I just thought I'd reread that whole. That I've, I just thought I'd reread that reread the whole. <laughs> reread the whole. I'll reread the headline with my own little bit at the end. So the headline is "Gaping Hole in the Sun Bigger Than Sixty Earths Just Blasted Solar Wind Right at Us, and We're Fine." <laughs> just should have, the Wi-Fi didn't go down. Your skin didn't melt off your bones. Everything's <laughs> cool, all right? <laughs> Y2K didn't happen. It's all it did, good. Yeah. The Mayan calendar is just like the Gregorian calendar. It just needed to be reset. There was nothing to panic about. Anyway, that wraps it up for this week's Newsreel installment. Remember, if you guys at home have news articles and topics of interest that you think we should cover, send them in. You can use any of the usual ways to contact us. You may even use some of the more unusual ways, like maybe... Get a, a uh, sperm whale to uh, to come close to shore when we're out on the beach and tell us that you've got an article in particular that you'd like us to to cover. Just make sure that that sperm whale is in uh, good health when you yeah. do it. And then you might see your topical news article covered here or in the main topic discussion. And with that said, Gareth, what is mm -hmm. the main topic? Well, the main topic is Gareth yet again gets jealous of people finding beautiful fossils and me finding absolutely almost nothing um but it comes from the bbc it could have been pretty much any local news source uh because this is is one that was found within a relatively close proximity to both of us aaron and this is pliosaur discovery huge sea monster emerges from dorset cliffs and it is it is a gorgeous looking thing you've seen the mm. picture of it as well i'm assuming i have yes it's yeah. oh it this is a skull of a pliosaur for those of you who don't know what a pliosaur is um they are giant marine reptiles that lived during the jurassic period that was the real height of their uh existence they look a bit like the body of a plesiosaur which are the the long neck marine reptiles that people think of for like nessie and stuff like that but enlarge the head, shrink the neck, and that's a pliosaur. Now, pretty uh, similar to the mosasaurs, basically. Well, I'd say mosasaurs are a bit more streamlined, and a bit longer, and a bit more sort of, I, I, I would say, adapted for high pursuit. Mm. Whereas pliosaurs, they almost look like a turtle without a shell, but with a yeah, okay, head. fair enough. So you wouldn't think they'd be able to move very fast, but evidently. These were apex predators at this particular point during the Jurassic period. And it would appear that Britain had some pretty nasty waters. You would not want to be in the water uh, during the Jurassic period in the UK because there were giant ichthyosaurs, there were giant uh, pliosaurs, giant fish. It, it would be a very dangerous place to go swimming. Forget trying to gently coax one away from the beach. This thing will just bite you in half. It's uh, a two-meter-long uh, fossil skull, and it is a exquisitely preserved, complete specimen, and it is basically going to give a new insight into these ancient predators. The skull is also going to be featured in an Attenborough documentary on BBC One 
on New Year's Day. So for everyone Wonderful. to watch that, that will be uh, will be on. So that's that's pretty cool. So it was unveiled the other day. It had been talked about for uh, at least the best part of a year in sort of paleontological circles uh, when it was found. It's sort of not been talked about, but has been hinted at by quite a few different people and Facebook groups and things like that. So if you follow the, the right people, you you might have seen some hints of this leading up to uh, the unveiling of it. But the quote in the uh, the article here says, Oh, wow, there were gasps as the sheet covering the fossil is pulled back and the skull is revealed for the first time. It's immediately obvious that this pliosaur was huge uh, and beautifully preserved. There isn't a specimen anywhere else to match it, uh, believes local paleontologist Steve Etches. Now, I, I must say I'm exceedingly jealous of uh, Steve Etches for the very simple reason he has an entire museum uh, of some of his finds. The Etches collection down near Kimbridge in Dorset, where this was found, is a must-see. And Aaron, I don't think you've been there, have you? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, it's, well, it's a must-see. It's a really amazing collection itself in that they've got no, I've all not. the different things that have been found been down there. But as you walk into one of the main galleries of this quite new museum as well, uh, you've got almost like a video screen that is around the entire room that has like a, a continuous video as if you're underwater during the Jurassic period. So you see ammonites swimming past and you see plesiosaurs and then fish and then giant pliosaurs coming past as well. So it's it's really quite a cool interactive thing as you walk in there. And then at the end of the room, they've got like a big fossil preparation room where you've got people preparing fossils and that. But um, Steve Etches is the person who basically started this collection with his uh, with his wanderings on the on the beaches and, and collecting various different fossils to uh, to fill into this collection. So it's no wonder he's been able to find such a beautiful specimen because he lives in one of the most amazing places for finding stuff like that, the Jurassic Coast. So the article goes on to say that the lower jaw and the upper skull uh, are meshed together as they would have been in life. Uh, worldwide, there's hardly any specimens ever found to the level of detail. And if they are, there's usually bits missing. Whereas uh, this, although is slightly distorted, it's got every bone present. So it's got a slight bit of a squash to it from where it's been fossilized. The skull is longer than most humans are tall and which gives you a sense of just how big the creature was overall. Um, you can't help but focus on the 130 teeth, especially the big ones in the front, which are close to the size of a T-Rex's teeth, I'd say. They are huge dagger-like things for being able to impale prey on. So they reckon that the animal would have been uh, 10 to 12 meters long with four powerful flippers, uh, as we were saying, mm. that would have made it an apex predator. And... Um, just to finish up uh, a quote from uh, Steve Etches himself, he says, now that he has the skull, he wants the rest of the animal's body. He's coming for you. So, yeah, definitely <laughs> go down and see that if you get a chance, if you're down in Dorset, because it is a stunning looking thing. And watch that um, BBC documentary uh, on New Year's Day if you can. Yeah, yeah. that sounds cool. Hmm. Right, well. Shall we pull ourselves out of the Jurassic waters and, and head on into slightly chillier climbs for your creature feature? Yeah, let's go hiking. 
it's the Creature Feature. Right, well, we're into this week's Creature Feature. Uh, what uh, what are we looking at, Aaron? I'm, I'm feeling it's rather chilly here today. It is chilly, which I guess is the start of the theme for the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, but I'm going to start off with a question for you, Gareth. And that question mm-hmm. is, how many kilograms are in an ounce? No. Is it about... 30 to 40? <laughs> 75. <laughs> 75? Yeah. Well, they're heavier than I remember. Mm. Now, before everyone else asks me to say ounces are lighter than kilograms. Uh, no, no, no. A hog's head is in a chain, which is like an ounce, which is like a, a barrel <laughs> and a furlong minus a, a pound and a kilo. It's uh, we'll, we'll dive on into the uh, to what what can be lovingly called the ghost of the Himalayas. So it's November. The rains of the monsoon season are a distant memory. The weather is cooling, but still somewhat at its best with clear skies and a warmer sun to stretch out in. Gareth is just over five years old and beginning to look like a snow leopard in his prime. I look terrible for five. (laughs) Snow leopards are found up to 4,000 meters above sea level. And perched on a rock 3,782 metres exactly up a mountain is where we find Gareth, surveying the lands beneath him, the lower altitudes of his territory. He's hungry, uncomfortably so. His last feed was a marmot, which at seven kilograms is barely larger than the domestic cat that you may have on your lap as you listen to this. He needs something more substantial, something filling a satisfying meal he can really sink tooth and claw into. Problem with marmots is uh, once you eat one, you know, you think you're full, but it's uh, it's gone within minutes. They're, 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 they're light and tasty morsels, but they're very Moorish. Yeah. So what exactly do you think you're, what are you hoping to see from your perch up there? Oh, I would imagine something along the lines of like a markor or uh, some sort of ibex, mm. some sort of large... Hoof stock animal that's gonna it's gonna have a nice nice chunky leg on it you know yeah you're definitely in the ballpark a, a snow leopard's preferred weight range for prey is about 36 to 76 kilograms as i said it's the satisfying meal that you need but perhaps not entirely the satisfying dining experience you'd prefer you're looking for himalayan blue sheep wild goat agali and Himalayan tar, uh, they tend to be your go-to options on the m- mountain menu. But today, goat's two options. Yeah, <laughs> I missed out on that fun, didn't I? <laughs> well, you've spotted something different. Oh. Yeah, something something better, perhaps. Oh. It's a tale as old as time. An age-old scene, one we've witnessed in many documentaries featuring a snow leopard hunt. 300 meters below you, a herd of Markor are on the move, just as you said you were hoping to see. Nice. As the climate begins to cool, they've begun to venture uphill from the forested areas that they haunt for browsing. Congregating on the exposed grassy slopes, even the solitary males are present, but they're distracted. The herd's attention is drawn to two huge males about 30 meters away from the herd each around 110 centimetres and almost equal that in kilograms. As their horns clash in violent blows, shotgun-like blasts echo off the slopes. The herd forages closer, 
The males are locked, pushing and pulling, vying for firm footing and looking to throw down their rival. 20 metres back to where the herd were before all this commotion, a young adult is himself distracted. Stretching up on his hind legs to reach a few choice leaves, he hasn't spotted Gareth coming. The herd hasn't either. Whilst we watch the herd, our resident snow leopard has traced his way down the slope with agility that would make a parkour athlete's brain melt. It's taken us a minute to get our eyes in to see where Gareth is amongst the rocks and shingles of the slopes. His naturally camouflaged coat renders him next to invisible in a way that few cats, even with their impressive natural camouflage, can really rival. Nobody can see me. No, it's like you're wearing a stealth suit. He's 15 metres from the young Marco now, right above him, and he waits as he walks past him. Gareth's 12 metres from him now. He's right beneath him. He drops his shoulder and pounces. Rah. The injury-defying attack lands a skimming blow, knocking his prey off of its feet, but not enough to make a killing bite. The Markor darts off, jumping from ledge to ledge with the snow leopard hot on his heels. Oh, Gareth don't make me run. round as his prey zigzags across the crags, but his prey makes a fatal error. Passing Ooh. between two larger boulders, he's afforded Gareth a second launch pad. He uses his long, thickly muscled tail as a rudder, changing direction on a dime before his short but powerful front legs and heavily muscled chest springboard him onto the boulder and initiate a remarkable 10-metre leap onto his prey. Meow. And Gareth smotes his ruin upon the mountain side. <laughs> the chase is over. Unscathed, surprisingly, Gareth carries his quarry back to a secluded spot amongst a rocky hollow. Here, he'll feast for three days on the 50-kilogram Markor, a meal that will keep him going a further week to come. So snow leopards are undeniably impressive animals. We've seen how the specially evolved body plan aids in hunting. Hang on, I'd just like to point out, I didn't die in that one. You didn't? No, normally I end up making some sort of fatal mistake. You know, I'd have gone off the side of the mountain or something. No, you survived uh, death-defying drops. You survived incredibly treacherous and loose terrain. Um, and also you set, you showed just how uh, how well adapted you are to excel at hunting on such dangerous precipices. Everything I am not. <laughs> <laughs> but your body is also the perfect answer to life in the cold winters of the Himalaya. The thick coat is whitish grey, dappled with dark rosettes that break up the cat's form, perfectly hiding it from its prey. It's also up to 12 centimetres thick, blocking out the biting winds and the snow. Its body is small and legs are short compared to other panthera, an adaptation that suits the slinking, hiding, climbing and leaping hunting techniques applied to the rocks and boulders of these mountains. But it is also a smaller surface area uh, over which to lose body heat from. The legs also end in thickly padded and heavily furred feet, silencing their approach to prey, but also preventing heat loss from contact with the frozen terrain. At one end of the body, we see a head that is shorter in the muzzle and more elevated in the forehead than other panthera. This allows for larger nasal cavities that have the dual function of inhaling larger volumes of air with each breath during the hunt, and also warming the air 
as they breathe it in during cold snaps. At the other end of the body is that huge tail, longer, more heavily muscled, and far thicker in, in fur than other panthera species. And this tail acts very much like the, the cougar, which you've you've covered in the past. It, yeah. it, it acts like a rudder and a balance prop during the chase. But at night, where the snow leopard differs, is it wraps its tail around its entire body like a blanket, providing extra warmth against the elements. The snow leopard is a prime example of the level of evolutionary perfection cats have attained in order to outcompete other carnivores and maintain their position as the apex predators of their ecosystems. Living above the tree line at about 3,000 to 4,000 meters on the alpine meadows of their mountainous territories, the snow leopard range extends through southern Siberia, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tibet, India, Nepal, Bhutan, and Mongolia. And though this may seem like, especially when I list it off like that, like a relatively large range covering an area roughly the size of Mexico, it houses a worryingly small population. The latest estimates put snow leopard numbers at around 3,920 to 6,390 individuals. So not big numbers at all. Their threats are multifaceted, as is the case for all cats, and in fairness, most if not all species generally. Poaching and the illegal trade of specimens alive and deceased continues to be a disgustingly common figure in the plight of the snow leopard. Russia and China are the main offenders here, moving their plunder through Kazakhstan. Indeed. Whilst much of the snow leopard poaching is to supply the equally shocking and ridiculous traditional medicine markets in, in China, Mongolia and Tibet, Tibet and Mongolia also use snow leopard pelt uh, in traditional ceremonial dresses. Human wildlife conflict is also still an issue, particularly as unlike many other carnivores used as scapegoats, snow leopards like their sister species, the tiger, are actually known to take livestock when they can. This is largely due to the disappearance of prey species in the snow leopard range. And because I related to it, the tiger range too. Mm, no points definitely. for guessing how and why that has happened though. Well, yeah. Interesting you say that. The um that BBC series that they did where it was searching for tigers in Bhutan. That's right. I was re-watching that a while ago, and it had Steve Backshaw going to uh, basically a sheep farmer or a goat herder mm. on the side of a mountain. And one of his goats had been taken by a snow leopard. Um, I mean, they're not fenced in in any way. They're just sort of out on the mountainside. Yeah, but right. he heard one of them get taken in the night and he knew they were around, but they sort of were able to talk to him and convince him obviously not to go and shoot it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a really good, it's quite an old documentary now. I've, I think it was BBC. It was either BBC or Nat Geo, but it was. Uh, it's. It. I think it's just called Snow Leopard. I'd have to dig it out so that I can. Uh, I can share this, but that won't be until next year now. But, um, it's a really good documentary, and they talk to villagers, and the villagers are all actually. They know that they lose uh, livestock to them, and it's a huge inconvenience and problem for them. But they, I believe, they were talking about. My memory's a bit blurred, but I believe they were talking about using dogs to keep the snow leopards away like Tibetan uh, and mastiffs that, and things yeah and that generally they're the villagers in that village were really keen to protect the snow leopard they they mm. felt that it was part of their community and their culture so there are places in the world in in the snow leopard range where 
the snow leopards do enjoy a better relationship with humans, but yeah. Um, on the subject of threats, another threat, possibly quite obvious, really, but due to their habit, their habitat preference, snow leopards are also uniquely afflicted by uh, climate change. The warming climate is already enabling trees to grow higher up the slopes, and it's estimated that the snow leopards will lose approximately thirty percent of their alpine zone uh, as the tree line progresses higher and higher into their into the areas where they both live and hunt and migrate through. But with these threats and such low population numbers in mind, we should probably head back to the Himalayas to check in on Gareth, who's about to make some world-changing choices. So we're back. It's now the middle of February, and the imposing mountainous elevations of the Himalayas are shrouded in cloud, snow, and potential romance. The time of year wow. is important because snow leopards, unlike others, have a tighter uh, set breeding pattern. Gareth has his nose stuck to a rock, inhaling intently. He's picked up a scent. What could it be, Mr. G? An another snow leopard? I mean, to be honest, I thought you were going to make it out like I'd gone and licked the rock and got me tongue frozen. Got your tongue it. stuck, yeah. That was tempted. This is a little red heron, but no. Uh, that, that's right. This rock in his territory, in your territory, How has been very dare on. they. Yeah, normally this would be an absolute outrage. Weeing on Gareth's rocks in That's the summer, rock. the audacity, the unmitigated gall. Uh, but not so now, in the winter, and not so for the owner of this scent. Gareth's intruder is a girl. Uh, she's been spraying urine on features of the landscape where her territory dips into that of a male's, and she's been doing so with increased frequency of late. Gareth now sets about following the trail of breadcrumbs or weed-on objects, in the hopes of catching up to her. Animals can get a lot of information from wee and poo, as we've discussed in this podcast oh, before. Yes. In the case of this wee, Gareth knows roughly how long it's been since she passed through uh, this area of his territory, and more importantly, that she's in season. Coming it's across, a, it's, a, it's a fragrant... Uh, yes, I'm getting autumn <laughs> notes. Um, autumn sort notes. Of a, you know, a fruity body... Um, Yes, yeah, it's you know, it's a, it's a, it's 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 definitely full-bodied. Yeah. Well, you've now come across a dead tree, uh, oh. and you've found more urine scent accompanied by claw marks in the tree. You're getting close. Gareth can also start to hear her calls. He finds her near a ledge on a rocky outcrop. He's a handsome and healthy chap, measuring 56 centimetres in height and nearly two metres long, not to mention weighing in at a stocky 52 kilograms, just shy of the average 55 kilograms for a male. Once acquainted, the two cats will mate up to 36 times a day and will travel together through the shared section of the te their territories. The pairing lasts just eight days, matching the female's season. During this time, the couple will never be more than 10 metres apart a fact supported by GPS radio collars. But after this spark goes out, they will go their separate ways. Gareth, what will you do now that your winter fling has come to an end? Well, probably go and eat another Markor, I suppose. Yeah, you're, you're pretty much right. You'll you'll go back to your solitary way of life for a year. Snow leopards don't just I'll have go, a I'll go and do the I'll go and do the Batman thing. I'll sit broodingly on a ledge yeah. and stare over and go, I am the the 
fluffy cat in the night. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you're quite right. You, you'll just go back to stalking and hunting and eating and sleeping. Sounds like a good life, to be honest. <laughs> Snow leopards, as I say, they don't just have a set season, but an incredibly short one. The chances are, once this fling ends, any other females that are near enough uh, for for Gareth to be interested in will also be out of season two. So there's no point going out on the pull again, Gareth. The female, however, will go through a 93 to 110 day gestation period, during which time she'll select a rocky cave or hollow in the mountainside. There, she'll give birth to a litter of up to three cubs, though seven have been observed in the past two. The den will be lined with fur shed from her underbelly, and the blind cubs will weigh up to nearly 570 grams. But they are not completely defenseless. Whilst they don't stand a chance against predators, they are, in fact, thickly furred already, which offers them an element of camouflage and a whole lot of insulation from the cold. At a week of age, these, uh, sorry, a week after being born, their eyes open. At two months of age, they are moving on to solid meat. At three months, they are following their mother and learning how to be a snow leopard through her examples. And like other panthera species, between 18 and 22 months of age, they will finally leave their mum for the last time and strike out alone. The female cubs will mature at three years old, but it takes a further year to mature a male. No real surprises there. <laughs> Gareth has been a great snow leopard to observe for this creature feature, a successful, if a little clumsy hunter, and a male that hey. has successfully passed on his genes to the next generation. But at five years old, he's going to have to work hard and take great care to surpass an expected lifespan of about eight years in the wild. If he's lucky, he'll get 15. So let's leave Gareth in the Himalayas now and come back to the warm light of the cupboard. So at the start of the creature feature, I asked how many kilograms are in an ounce. And you may have quite rightly questioned my education, but Gareth knew what I was talking about because only half of that question was about weight. If you've listened to the podcast over the last three years, you may well have heard us all, in fact, all three of us at some point or another wax poetically about the snow leopard whenever the species is mentioned. But on at least one occasion, I particularly have referred to the animal by its true, in inverted commas, name, uh, the ounce or ounce cat. The name comes to us from the old French word ounce, which is actually spelt like the English word once, so O-N-C-E, um, despite its pronunciation, and was originally used to refer to the Eurasian lynx, actually. Oh. This is also where the Latin part of their binomial name, uncia, uh, finds its root. Ounce was originally spelt lounce, as in L-O-N-C-E, despite, again, its pronunciation being lounce. This then became lounce, uh, with a apostrophe between the L and the O, because French speakers believed the L was shortened to basically to mean la, as in, you know, the French word for the L English. Ounce, yeah, the... yeah. Eventually, the L was dropped altogether to give us ounce, uh, O-N-C-E, which in English is both pronounced and spelt Ounce. O U N C E. So that's all very confusing. That's where uh that's where the uh uncia 
uh, came from for um for their Latin name. Now, the Latin name itself is interesting. The naming and classification of snow leopards has a bit of an involving history to match that of the French word uh, that that we just spoke about. Named Felis Uncia originally by German naturalist Johann Christian Daniel von Schrieber in 1777, the animal was later named Uncia Uncia in 1830 by British zoologist John Edward Gray, a name that would remain somewhat popular for more than 160 years. Because uh, that's the name I've known them by until relatively recently. Yeah, some people still use it today, and it's a little bit outdated because it was at the turn of the millennium that a panthera genus was used to describe the snow leopard skin. Panthera vecalensis romani was proposed, but ultimately panthera uncia was settled upon, and that Much is easier. how we get our name today. And this relationship as part of the panthera genus is quite extraordinary too. Research into molecular phylogenetics reveals that the snow leopard and the tiger are sister species. It further reveals that their common ancestor split from the last common ancestor of all big cats, uh, which was shared some 3.9 million years ago, making this lineage the oldest surviving big cat branch. Tigers then split from snow leopards 3.2 million years ago. Meanwhile, the jaguar lineage had split from the big cat common ancestor 3.6 million years ago, making the jaguar lineage younger than the snow leopard lineage, but older than the tiger species. To add even more intrigue, mitochondrial genomes of snow leopards, leopards, and lions are more similar to each other than their nuclear genomes are. That means that despite the earlier splits that I covered, the three species have hybridized at some point in their evolution, Presumably the reason why the jaguar is missing from this big cat cocktail is that it was already isolated to the Americas. But that's just my best guess without having read any further into it. Pure speculation on my part. But I mean, to be fair to, to you guys listening, I might be the only person that's actually interested in mitochondrial <laughs> genome, genomic history of big cats. But there were European jaguars at one point, weren't there? Yes, there was. Yes, yeah. there was. Very, very anyway, long. that is the snow leopard. Uh, not so much of in a nutshell, but certainly a, a deep dive. I hope, uh, hopefully, an enjoyable deep dive. They are out of all the big cats that I've worked with. In fact, the only ones that I've not worked with are jaguars, and okay, snow leopards are up there as one of my favorites, especially when I used to do the sort of public feeding with them, like, like. Both of us used to do with lions, where we would have them put their paws up on the on the uh, the yes. fence so that you can have a good look on their underside. But there's just something about that fluffy snow leopard uh, paws and those fluffy snow leopard underbelly that you just you do actually want to just give them a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a cuddle. There is something about snow leopards, isn't there? Like that, yeah. Their um, face as well. The the way that they look at you, it's it's different from a lot of the other big cats. They don't look with that intention of I'm going to kill you. It's more, uh, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, you They're know. more inquisitive. Yeah. They're um, really fun to do enrichment with. Yes. I, I expect they are. The snow leopard is, so I, the only big cats I never got to work with, that I, I mean, I would, if, if, if I went back to zookeeping, then, then these would be one of the motivations why it's, it's snow leopards and jaguars. I never got to work with those two species. Mm. Them and them and the bears are what would oh, be bears back are to uh, 
to zookeeping. Um, if yeah. if in like in I and uh, a world where zookeeping was 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 a uh, financially feasible thing to do <laughs> as a family, as a family man. Um, yeah. Did you just out of interest? Did you have dehumidifiers in your snow leopard house? No, in in both of the collections I worked at with them, neither of them had that. In fact, they were both in just sort of quite bog standard, you know, large cat enclosures. So, One of them was um, a bit more modern than the other, but was actually smaller than the older one, which was, I would say, looked less appealing to the public hmm. because it was a big metal cage, like a big dome sort of thing. Yeah. But it had a lovely big uh, Scots pine tree that grew up through the center of it that the cats would sit in. And every now and again, if a pigeon was silly enough to land on the tree, you'd just see this paw come through and grab a pigeon, pull it through. <laughs> um, but they, th those cats had a really good uh, level of like enrichment and, and ability to move around in there than um, the other ones, which were in a smaller but newer enclosure. So no, but I, I imagine being Himalayan animals, they need, um, well, a low humidity level compared to what we have in the UK. Yeah. The, um, they found, I can't remember who did the, uh, who first worked it out, but snow leopards in captivity have had their, uh, they, they were never cats that kind of reached the same kind of life expectancy in captivity that other big cats did. And eventually someone, I can't remember if it was through study or through just trial and error, someone, put a dehumidifier in um and they found that the cat's health improved and and now the snow leopards with dehumidifiers enjoy a much longer life expectancy than they do without them oh well, that's good to see that i do yeah, need again, to look into research um, is, is doing exactly exactly is doing far more than uh, than just making things look pretty i suppose it's it's making things work I did I ask a couple people in the uh, in the profession um, if they remembered the name or the study, mm. um, because I would have liked to have like actually gotten that included. Oh, in I wonder if it's in they... like any of the husbandry guidelines nowadays. Maybe, then. maybe, but I could. Then they couldn't remember the name of the of the uh, of the person the or um. So yeah, but oh. yeah. Right. Well, shall we jump down from this ledge of me being a. Uh, big cat because i'm nowhere near that graceful hmm. and head into our our emails for this week let's do it bing you've got mail Ooh, it's an email we're into our emails for this week and um this week's question which has actually been quite a while in the uh the answering because we've had the interview last week and it sort of got left to the wayside uh which was um which person from the field of natural history would you most want to meet? For responses that we've got, we've got um, uh, from Pet Rock Animal Care, Diane Fossey, Jen Babs, uh, Sir David Attenborough, Darwin, Mary Anning. Apparently, I'm related to Captain Dampier, founder of the Dampier in Australia. Nice. Uh, hmm. The family legend is that even though he was a pirate, uh, he was a naturalist, would have liked to have met him and find out if it's true. Any of you guys been to Australia? Uh, yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I think I've been there. Um, <laughs> uh, my other half has put David Attenborough or Charles Darwin. Why not have both? Laura Charlotte Prale has put uh, Wallace. I assume 
Russell Alfred Wallace as opposed to Wallace and Gromit. In fact, she's put him twice saying Wallace with exclamation marks. So <laughs> I think we know what uh, what they want. Uh, Catherine Ames, Russ of uh, Aquamarix, preferably on a herping trip. Now, I had a quick look into that, uh, and he's uh, quite a well-known person in the uh, the reptile herping world. And then Kels- Kelsey Watts has put Gareth and Aaron. Isn't that nice? We 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 that feature nice. on a list that includes some pretty heavy hitters there, so uh, I, I'm I'm happy with that. Yes, that that is nice. Yeah, thank uh, you. I don't think either uh, you or I actually ventured into that one. Uh, so who would you uh, most want to meet, Aaron? Oh, uh, I think we did. Um, I think I because I think I said Sir David Attenborough. Mm. I mean, that's the I've I've, I've been to uh, one of his talks um yeah. and i i loved it well actually if the, the one that's dead and i know that this is very polarizing there's going to be some people listening that hate this answer and some people who listen and they're going to love this answer if i could have a magic telephone where i could talk to one that had, had passed away i would really and it, i know that it's going to be polarizing there'll be some people that hate this and some people that love this uh answer but it, I would I would love to have a conversation with Steve Irwin. Mm, um, no, because same. For all, for all the the criticisms that could be brought towards him, that that even that his fans could perhaps discuss his passion and excitement, genuinely genuine pure uh, excitement for the natural world, was so uh, invigorating and infectious yeah. and um it, it, it was just amazing you see him get excited about the most wonderful things and the most it's not a word i would use but for lame layman's sake the most mundane things too um yeah he just had a wonderful spirit for it and uh i'd love to know what kept him that positive and what motivated him true i i gotta admit he's he's someone i almost had a chance to meet um yeah through various circumstances. You've never told me that. Uh, I, I won't go into it now, but I'll, I'll tell you okay. off, off microphone. But yeah, hey. very, <laughs> very, secrets. very close to, to almost getting to meet him. Mm. Uh, if it weren't for like a very minor, like filming obligation, he'd have, he'd have been where I was at the time, sort of had the chance to have met him basically through contacts uh, of when, when I was working, um, in zoos in Australia, wow. but yeah, I'd have loved to have met him, and uh, I got to admit, I wouldn't mind meeting his son now. He's he's kind of grown on me. Yes, he's kind of yeah. grown on me, and and he he seems to be taking the the positive aspects that his his father had, and and I I hate to say it in in he's putting it in in a modern spin for today's generation. You know that you know he's um. He seems very like social media savvy and everything. So, uh, yep. yeah, it's. But again, Rob, Rob, his name's Robert, isn't it? Robert yeah. Irwin. He's named after his granddad, I think. Again, Robert Irwin is this this person who I'm sure I'm sure things do get to him, but like his dad, he seems just so naturally excited. Positive. Yeah, not just about the animal, but excited about the opportunity to teach you a complete stranger about this animal actually robert irwin i i doubt there is anybody listening to this that is connected to him but robert irwin is one of my i think he might be number three 
possibly number two on my list of like people I'd really like to have on this, this oh, podcast well, to interview. I think, I think you know if he'd if he, if he'd have us, you know. No, <laughs> I know. Yeah, that, I mean that. Yeah, people like him have far more important things to do. But I, he is a he would be a dream guest yeah. for for me personally. I'm not saying for the podcast as a whole, but for for me speaking just for myself. I'd love to talk to him about his uh, about his upbringing and how he keeps so, you know, so motivated and excited yeah. and and like just what what is it that him and his dad have that that because I like we want to teach people whether you're friend or stranger, but they have a certain way of doing it that I just don't think anyone else can emulate. Yeah, it's it is definitely a, a personality, I suppose. Yeah, mm. but uh, hmm. So, well, there you go, Robert Irwin, if you're listening. Um, yeah, feel free to come on the show. Same with uh, Attenborough, <laughs> uh, Steve Backshaw, um, any, pretty much anyone, really, you know, if you're a famous wildlife personality. Uh, but our question for you for next week, as next week will be our Christmas episode, uh, we will be asking you, what animal or plant do you best feel symbolizes this time of year? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you know, Christmas, because not everyone uh, celebrates Christmas. And it is very much a almost a northern hemispheric sort of tradition in its most traditional sense of it being a midwinter festival and, and everything. But yeah, let us know what animal or plant you best feel symbolizes this time of the year. Animals are always on the move and there's always certain species that turn up at certain points in a year. Aaron, what do you uh, feel best symbolizes this time of the year for you? This is probably going to be extremely, uh, it's going to be extremely predictable, I'm afraid, but there, there are, um, it's, it's caribou. Yeah. Specific, because I could go, if I went winter, if I went specifically winter, then, you know, it's, it's your, it's your caribou, your snow leopards, um, mammoths, even though they're not not around today, but but if we're going like you know specifically, kind of Yule tide season and um yeah Yule tide season and and you know this kind of festive period then yeah it's it's got to be it's, yeah, it's got to be fair caribou. Enough. I'm gonna go really like down the center vanilla as well. I'm gonna say robins. I think they they best symbolize it as well. I mean they're yeah, around yeah. all year round, but. They are a bird that stands out in winter, mostly because a lot of other species disappear off to the the continent or entirely to you know Africa and places like that. Mm-hmm. But robins are there all year round. They're in your face. They're easy to spot. They are loud, very loud birds, and they're also yeah they they get that sort of whole connection. In fact, listen back to our previous year's christmas episode because i believe believe our first year's christmas episode um drew did robins um, yeah i think so yeah and uh and their connection to things like postman and all sorts so go and have a Mm. listen back to that that's uh, definitely worth a listen and i believe you did caribou in that one and i did turkeys go and have a listen back to that if you are wanting to get in the Christmassy mood. So yeah, have a listen back to last year's episode where you did Dromedary Camel, I did Snowy Sheathbill, and I believe Drew did Holly. Uh, so a good mix and uh, a good lean into what will be coming next week for our Christmas episode. So uh, listen out for that one. And feel free to uh, put what you feel Christmas animal best symbolizes this time of the year. 
which pretty much brings us to the point where we get to uh, to talk about our Patreons uh, and the ways that you can support the podcast. So a big thank you to the following people that Aaron is going to do in a voice. Which which voice are you doing this week? Um, did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Connie P. the Wise? Or not? It's not a story Chelsea McKee would tell you. <laughs> Welcome. You'll find it is you who are mistaken, young Jen Greenhall, about a great many things. Of course, by now you'll know that Foctober can never be turned from the dark side. So will it be with you? Are you the Senate <laughs> by any chance? I am the the croaky voice Senate. <laughs> I am the Senate. Very good. Something, wonder... something dark side. Yeah. Something, something natural history. Complete. <laughs> that is the list of our Patreons. Complete. Oh, I'm afraid the Patreons will be quite operational when your friends arrive. <laughs> well, there you go. If you'd like to join the Rebel Alliance, as it were, there, and uh, become one of our Patreons, of which Darth Sidious is sitting there talking about in the corner, um, you can do so by going to our Patreon page and joining at various different levels uh, for various different benefits. Um, so a big thank you to all of those. They've done, uh, well, a massive amount. They've They've financially allowed us to get out and do more things for the podcast which will be uh, evident in the uh, the coming weeks. Uh, and a big thank you to you as well. If you're listening, that does a huge amount for us, obviously. Uh, our very first episode has actually just gone past 500 listens. Um, so people have, wow. listened, people have listened to that episode 500 times, <laughs> uh, which I find quite amazing. I mean, that's probably small numbers compared to some other larger podcasts, but... That's our worst, our worst episode as yeah, well. In terms of audio quality. It really is. They those five hundred people, unless they unless they stick around for it, uh, they don't even know that I exist. <laughs> well, no, I mean you were you were almost non existent in, uh, in that I, I one. was in Found the worst episode. You were there in, in, in spirit. You you could hear your voice, just like a spirit in the distance <laughs> whispering to us every now and again as we all I paid the around. ultimate price for our lack of vision as we all huddled around my phone and shouted at it which it just seems a bit insane now when we look back at how we're doing this now um but yeah basically by listening you are doing a gigantic amount more than you know um telling a friend telling an enemy uh telling a snow leopard on the side of a mountain shouting it up uh, actually don't shout on a mountain because you might set off an avalanche um but you can uh <laughs> You can help us out immensely by liking, sharing, subscribing on whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on, leaving us do a it. review. Yes, do that. Say that again. Do it. Yes, you've completely thrown me there. Uh, but yeah, that does a huge amount. It it helps uh, more than you know, and podcasts live and die on the word of mouth. So yeah, you guys are helping out in a million and one ways. So a big thank you for myself and, and Aaron and everyone here in the cupboard. Yes, everything that has transpired has done so according to our Patreon's design. Oh dear, he's stuck as Palpatine now. So before uh, Palpatine starts, uh, or Aaron Palpatine there starts building some sort of giant space laser to uh, destroy us all, 
I will. Um, I, I think that's probably the best that we uh, we end this episode. So a big thank you, Aaron. If you're you're still there, or have you completely gone to the dark side now? And now, young Jedi, you will die. Yep, he's he's gone. He's lost it. Oh well. Um, and a big thank you uh, to you at home for listening, and we'll see you next time here uh, in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. The dark side of natural history is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. You mean nocturnal animals? <laughs> <laughs>